0: It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey there, let's try a little thought experiment, shall we? Uh, there's a situation in Texas where a whole bunch of Democratic state lawmakers have fled the state. They got on planes and came here to D.C. in order to block the Republican controlled legislature uh, from passing a voting bill that they vehemently and vociferously disagree with. So denying the GOP a quorum by leaving town. Here's a headline in the New York Times this morning. Texas Democrats flee state to highlight GOP voting restrictions. Uh, They fled the state uh, in a last ditch effort to prevent the passage of a restrictive new voting law by the Republican-controlled legislature heading to Washington to draw national attention to their cause. I've seen pictures of there's a bunch of them on one flight sitting there all smiling. And the piece goes on to say the hastily arranged departure added a cinematic element to the partisan wrangling in a state with a colorful political history. Okay, so flip the script. Imagine that there's a state in which the Democrats are about to pass a voting rights law uh, that liberals support. And all of the, not all, because in this case, it's most of the uh, lawmakers. Uh, The vast majority of Republican lawmakers in that state get on airplanes and leave to block the passage of this voting rights law. Do you think the New York Times or any other mainstream media outlet would have a headline uh, talking about to highlight, they're they're fleeing to highlight Democratic voting excesses? Would it be described as a cinematic element in a state with a colorful political history or would it be described as sheer obstructionism? Now, this is not, I'm not taking a position here on this law. Um, It may well be that the Democrats, I mean, they have every right to fight this thing. Uh, and, you know, national groups that have looked at this that says it will make it harder to vote in Texas and that that apparently is the intent. So this is not a commentary on the merits of the law. It's about the tactics and the way in which those tactics are covered. Uh, meanwhile, Republican Governor Greg Abbott says he may arrest, he may have these Democrats arrested when they eventually come back to Texas. And also, obviously, unless they all just want to move, uh, this is a delaying tactic. It's not going to ultimately prevail. Uh, So I just thought it was very striking. Um, Troubling statistic in the papers today uh, on COVID-19, 23,000 new cases. While that's a far cry from the 200 plus thousand new daily cases uh, of the virus back during either of the peaks Uh, it's up 94% in just the last two weeks. So what does that reflect? It reflects the Delta variant. It reflects the refusal of many people, particularly concentrated in certain states and certain regions of the country, to get vaccinated. If they would get vaccinated, you wouldn't have the new cases up 94%. Uh, And on that point, uh, Newsmax anchor Rob Schmidt, here's what he had to say the other day. I feel like a vaccination in a weird way is just generally kind of going against nature. I mean, if there was some disease out there, maybe there's just an ebb and flow to life where something's supposed to wipe out a certain amount of people. Seriously? You're kind of coming out in favor of thinning the herd, that we shouldn't interfere with nature? I mean, Why have any medicine at all? Everyone can just fight survival of the fittest, right? It's supposed to wipe out a certain amount of people. I I just find that to be a stunning comment. There's a lot of back and forth. Uh, The New York Times did a piece singling out Fox's uh, Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson for skeptical comments they've made related to the vaccination program. They say they're not against vaccines, but they're entitled to ask questions. Laura, in particular, has raised questions about uh, giving the vaccines to children. Um, And then uh, Democratic Whip Dick Durbin in the Senate picked up on that and Denounced said Fox has to do better. You know, the article also said that Fox, uh, uh, other news uh, anchors at Fox have made a PSA urging people to get vaccinated. So, you know, they're singling out two people whose ideology they don't like. Uh, And then um, Tucker and Laura hit back at Dick Durbin um, in very colorful terms. So all of this is going on. You know, my position is simple. These are life-saving drugs. They're miraculous drugs. And if more people in America took them, we'd all be better off Uh, I don't think anybody should be forced to take it it's an individual decision but I certainly think there's a case to be made that this would be better not just for the people who would get the shots but for everybody around them and for, for society as a whole all right getting down to business here with number one you know, I spoke on the podcast yesterday about a piece uh, that first appeared in the Washington Free Beacon by Matthew Cottonetti saying, you know what, especially this summer, D.C.'s gotten to be a pretty boring place. It's just dull. Uh, not a lot's going on in the Biden era and so forth. So this is almost a companion piece appearing now in the New York Times, focused more on the 46th president. Even President Biden thought he had been ponderous. I know that's a boring speech, he said. It leads off with an anecdote. as uh, a piece by reporter Michael Shear about Biden giving a speech just laden with statistics and uh, dense terminology. It went on for about a half an hour. You know, nobody would say it was a great exhortation. And, says the piece, and, you know, it took a little bit of, um, I mean, it's just basically good journalism, but it took a little bit of nerve, I guess, in the climate in which liberals are supposed to fall into lockstep support of Joe Biden to publish this piece. Biden is facing a rhetorical reality that has plagued many of his predecessors. There is a vast difference between explaining and inspiring. And Biden often struggles to reach the potential oratorical heights of the office he holds. In other words, this piece says Biden is boring. He's just boring. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but he's boring. He is not a colorful, exciting... um, or, for that matter, divisive or confrontational public figure who happens to be, at the age of 78, the president of the United States. And I've said before, I mean, this is all by design. It's a way to preserve his political capital, uh, to boost his popularity. Uh, But there are also serious questions about whether this enables him to get things done. He got a couple things done. He certainly, certainly got high marks on battling the pandemic, no question about it. And he's gotten high marks for passing the original COVID relief bill, but now everything seems stalled. Anyway, to continue with this time story, the White House is perfectly fine with Biden's ability to turn down the political heat in Washington after four years of divisive rhetoric and chaotic government. Translation, he's not Donald Trump. But like uh, Barack Obama, who once delivered a 17-minute answer to a health care question, and Bill Clinton, who was forced to apologize... Uh, to Johnny Carson for a dreadful convention speech. That was back in 1988, four years before he won the presidency. Uh, Biden can sometimes get lost in the minutia. By the way, while those things are true about Obama and Clinton, they can go on and on and on. They also were both capable of delivering absolutely spellbinding speeches. I mean, whether you like their politics, whether you like their presidencies or not, uh, you know, and same with Ronald Reagan. You know, they were great performers on the public stage. Biden, not so much. Uh, The details of governing system times can be mind-numbingly tedious. And when the president starts a policy speech, uh, what seems like high-stakes drama to those inside the Washington Beltway often feels like the stuff of PBS documentaries to the rest of the country. In other words, wake me up when it's over. Uh, Biden often mumbles, stumbles, pauses, and does real-time corrections as he struggles through the dense material on the teleprompter. And Look, if you've watched Biden's speeches, you know that's basically true. He does give some good speeches. Uh, He does give some good press conferences. But, you know, he often goes into these sort of detours or gets tripped up or has to kind of repeat the phrase or correct himself on the number or whatever it is. Uh, This was true when he was vice president. As a presidential candidate, he was often criticized for not being a great orator. Okay, you know what? It takes more than being a great orator to run the country and at the same time it helps to be able to inspire people, especially if you've got almost no margin for error in Congress and you're trying to get public opinion on your side as a way of pressuring lawmakers, both in your party, not to mention the other party, to push through major legislation. I mean, we've got the, um, the Jobs Act, the Family Act, uh, what he wants to do with housing, climate change, police reform, immigration, um, all these things Biden wants to do. And right now, a lot of it is stuck. And a lot of it is stuck because, you know, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema don't want to abolish the filibuster. Voting rights, for example. He's giving a big voting rights speech today. Voters in the election decided to choose boring over bombast. And for that, Mr. Biden and his White House advisors make no apology. All right, number two, let's check in with Trump World. Uh, there's a news story out today. Jenna Ellis, who became uh, quite the high-profile attorney as a legal advisor to Trump's 2020 campaign, she said yesterday she's leaving the Republican Party to protest the disclosure of an email from somebody at the RNC, and I'll get to that in a second. As a Washington Post scoop. Um, she called on RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel and other members to resign now, and she won't come back, until they do resign. Well, I don't know if they're going to end up having to resign or not, but I don't think it's going to be because of Jenna Ellis. Uh, she, she questioned why uh, the millions raised by the RNC in November and December, uh, didn't, not a dime went to the Trump team to help them uh, fight the election results. I am leaving the Republican Party, she said on Newsmax, where she's a contributor, until the Republican Party comes back home to conservatives. Now. Is it that the Republican Party has left conservatism or is it the Republican Party has left Trumpism? Well, here's what triggered this. Washington Post exclusive, um, the GOP's top lawyer, warned in November against continuing to push false claims that the presidential election was stolen, calling efforts by some of the former president's lawyers, which would include uh, Jenna Ellis, a joke, that's a quote, a joke that could mislead millions of people, according to an email obtained by the paper. Justin Reamer, RNC chief counsel, was trying to discourage uh, a party staffer from posting claims about ballot fraud on RNC accounts as attempts by Trump and his associates to challenge results in a number of states like Arizona, Pennsylvania intensified. Okay, here's the email. What Rudy, you know who that is, and Jenna are doing is a joke and they are getting laughed out of court, says Reamer, who's a longtime Republican lawyer, and he's writing to Liz. Harrington, former party spokeswoman, she's now Donald Trump's personal spokeswoman. And he's referring to Giuliani and Ellis. They are misleading millions of people who have wishful thinking that the president is going to somehow win this thing. And this is before January 6th. It's before the Capitol riot. We um, was skeptical of some of the conspiratorial theories being pushed by folks like Giuliani. Uh, Giuliani found out about this, he and other Trump allies tried to get Reamer fired after learning of this email. Um, and here's Reamer's statement. I led the RNC legal team in over 55 lawsuits on behalf of the president's re-election, winning a majority of them, including the only successful post-election lawsuit. Any suggestion that I did not support President Trump or do everything in my power to support the RNC's efforts to re-elect President Trump is False. He's saying, look, I was just doing a reality check. Uh, and related to this is, uh, you know, I ta- I've talked before about this, these new books coming out about the Trump presidency, one after the other, after another. Well, A new one is just hit by Washington Post reporters Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker, uh, titled I Alone Can Fix It from Trump's 2016 convention speech. And it has a scene on election night when you know, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on and Bill Stepi and the campaign manager, Mark Meadows, uh, the chief of staff, and Jason Miller, the spokesman, um, took hold of Giuliani because uh, they were having this what was going to be kind of like a celebration, a party in the White House. And they took him into the map room. He wanted to talk to Trump. They didn't want him talking to Trump. So they took him to the map room and said, what's up, Rudy? And Rudy went state by state and was asking them about what their plan was, what's happening in Michigan. Um, The political operative said it was too early to tell. The votes were still being counted. Giuliani, just say we won. Same thing in Pennsylvania. Just say we won, Pennsylvania, Rudy says. Giuliani's grand plan was just to say Trump won, state after state, based on nothing. Stepien, Miller, and Meadows thought his argument was both incoherent and irresponsible. We can't do that, Meadows said, raising his voice. We can't. Uh, So Rudy, you know, Rudy got a lot of pushback from some of the people around Trump and from the RNC we now see. Uh, And by the way, uh, in one of these stories it says the RNC is refusing to pay his legal bills on the grounds that Rudy Giuliani never actually worked for the Republican National Committee. All right, number three. Uh, The protests in Cuba uh, are inspiring to watch. It takes a lot of bravery to take to the streets in a totalitarian society such as Cuba's. You now, what's prompted this is that, you know, drugstores, hospitals have run out of medicines, blackouts have become frequent. Uh, if you're lucky enough to have foreign currency, you still have to wait for hours online just to buy beans and rice. I mean, this is a really uh, dramatic economic decline that Cuba has been going through in recent months. Uh, President Biden put out a statement yesterday. We stand with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom. He talked about decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. But look, a lot of conservatives are saying Biden should do more, and I would say this. Well, they're still angry that the Obama-Biden administration, after decades, you know, the U.S. embargo of Cuba is still going on, but after decades of no diplomatic relations, Obama restored diplomatic relations with Cuba on the theory that, you know, if we're going to talk to China, we're going to talk to Russia, uh, even on the Trump administration, we talk to North Korea. Um, how can we not have some kind of diplomatic engagement with this island that's hardly a military power, you know, 90 miles or so off the coast of Florida? So National Review editor Rich Lowry is hitting back about this. Um, he says, it's not easy to run a hideous dictatorship and still have fans and defenders in fashionable quarters, but the Castro regime has managed it for decades. By the way, as Lowry knows, the current president is not a member of the Castro family for the first time, you know, since the, what, 1959 revolution, you know, Fidel ruling all those years, and then his brother Raul. In another sign that the Cuban government lacks legitimacy, says Lowry, Castro's apologists here in the U.S. have, he says, romanticized Fidel Castro. Uh, they have swallowed the Cuba's propaganda. They have made excuses for it. They have looked away from its crimes. They have blamed America for its manifest failures. Bernie Sanders, I remember this well, he wouldn't back off when he was, you know, uh, looked like a real shot to win the Democratic nomination from making positive statements about the Castro regime. You know, it's done a lot of good things and education and so forth. Uh, oh, yes, the government should be less authoritarian, but it has done so much good. Michael Moore made a movie extolling the Cuban healthcare system. So, all I would say is those are all fair points. The left wing of the Democratic Party in this country does support and romanticize Cuba, despite the fact that its people are not free, despite the fact that Castro, the Castro regime, and it, it just certainly hasn't changed, throws its political opponents in jail. That's how it has maintained power all of these decades. But on the other hand, The United States is not going to go to war over Cuba, which is backed by Russia. Um, It's continuing the embargo. It would be nice to get regime change. It's a very popular issue in Florida, where obviously so many anti-Castro Cubans have fled. Uh, But realistically speaking, you know, we are trying to use our diplomatic efforts and the power of the embargo, which Cuba's always gotten around by getting more money from other countries like Russia. other socialist or communist regimes. Um, So I think it's fair to criticize, but at the same time, it's a pretty strong statement from President Biden uh, trying to send a pretty clear signal to the Cuban people that we're behind you, hoping that they're somehow going to topple the regime. I have to say, in all honesty, I think the odds of that happening uh, are extremely remote. But you never know. Uh, I would have said decades ago that the Soviet Union was never going to collapse, or that some of the Eastern European countries would remain under Russian domination. So it's important for Americans to say that we stand with the Cuban people, uh, but we also can't lose sight of political reality. Don't go anywhere. More Meter coming your way in just a moment. Number four. Facebook is again playing catch up. You know, Mark Zuckerberg created uh, a pretty innovative thing when he was at Harvard, the idea, you know, he was mostly interested in getting girls of a social network where people could talk to their friends and all that and since obviously morphed into a global giant, one of the most powerful media companies on the planet. But in recent years, basically one another thing that Facebook is really good at is copying other media outfits and social media outfits rather than coming up with the great ideas on its own. So, for example, one of the most successful things that Facebook does is its Instagram unit. But Facebook didn't create that. It bought it. It bought it for a large sum of money after the people who created Instagram, something that we be based on photos. Uh, obviously, it's branched down to a lot more videos and all of that. You know, it's becoming tremendously popular, but Facebook didn't create it. So the latest evidence of this is that Facebook, once again, uh, trying to emulate, borrow, steal, or otherwise be more competitive with its more innovative rivals such as YouTube and TikTok. Um, And so... What's happened is there's a whole, in case you haven't noticed, you've been living on a rock, you don't have a computer, uh, you only watch, uh, you know, the broadcast networks, whatever. There has been a whole rise of content creators. And a lot of them are young people. I mean, that's one of the great appeals of TikTok if you're not on it. I mean, it's not just, you know... Young women, but there's a lot of dancing and lip syncing and all that. And it's spread into, you know, things with special effects and all kinds of just fun stuff. Some of it is more serious, but TikTok is basically a great place to have fun. And it's fascinating that it wasn't even created here in America. It's a Chinese company, which, by the way, was about to do an IPO. was going to go public and decided at the last minute not to because of concerns that Chinese authorities would retaliate. You know, China has a way. If it wants to ban, you know, China has such a huge population. If it wants to ban your app, uh, it's very hard to be successful. So that part is on hold. In any event, what Facebook is now doing, and it's very late to this particular party, is trying to attract more of these content creators. You know, entrepreneurs, a lot of them younger people, but not necessarily, uh, who amass these great followings because they're talented, they go viral, they know how to make things that, you know, maybe somebody of an older generation might scratch their heads, what the hell is this? Um, And a lot of them, because Facebook was not hospitable to these content creators, I'll get into why in a moment. They migrated to TikTok, they migrated to Google's YouTube where they started their own channels and some of them are making a lot of money and they have these huge, massive followings. Some of them, some of them have more modest followings, but nevertheless, they're hot, they're buzzy. Uh, Naturally, it's more appealing um, to people, particularly teenagers and 20-somethings, than what now seems to them to be, you know, something that your parents are on, even your grandparents on, which is Facebook. So lately, uh, according to this story in the New York Times, Zuckerberg is now uh, hosting a creator week to celebrate influencers, which, you know, I never really heard that term until people became influential and pushing products and so forth on Instagram. Um, And Facebook used to be a very innovative and buzzy place, but it's been years. Remember the thing where everybody was suddenly uh, pouring a bucket of cold water over their head in order to raise awareness and raise money? uh for als well that was kind of a facebook innovation but it was a decade ago so again playing catch up here so now facebook is is offering creators a chance to put their popular videos and facebook uh, excuse me uh, photos and posts on facebook and on facebook related apps and you know and not charging anything some of these others you know you have to pay uh, some kind of fee or you have to split the profits now of course eventually a facebook can get a foothold in this arena, uh, it's going to start charging. I don't think there's any pretense about that, but at the moment, it's like free of charge. Hey, come on over. Um, the, The water is fine over here. So according to one estimate in this story, a venture capital firm says there's at least 50 million people around the world who now consider themselves Content creators. Now, uh, part of me reacts to that by saying, Yeah, you know, this is one of the problems that leads in America. Like, nobody makes anything anymore. All the manufacturing, much of it has gone overseas. And we make videos, we make content, we make things that appeal to dog lovers and cat lovers. I'm being a little flippant here, but you know, look, content is content. Videos are big business. Uh, photos are big business. The online world is big business. And if you are just some person who has a special talent for dancing, singing, parody, uh, being a comedian, uh, you name it, and you can get people to follow you, well, good for you. And you don't have to get a TV contract or a radio contract or a column in a newspaper. Uh, Twitter is also trying to play this game, so Twitter introduced tipping recently. I talked about that a few weeks ago on the podcast where, you know, if you like somebody's content, you can reward them by tipping them, you know, any amount of money. Snapchat, you know, which also is one of the more innovative, and, and everything that Snapchat has done, has been copied by others, including Facebook. Um, Instagram, again, which is owned by Facebook, has a thing which is a complete ripoff of TikTok called Reels, where, you know, people can make these videos and so forth. Um, And look, you know, in the content world, people steal from each other. It's not illegal unless you're trying to force a competitor out of business. Snapchat, according to this piece, is now paying creators up to $1 million a day to post on its platform and is rolling out other ways for creators to make money. Wow, a million dollars a day. I mean, I, I know that, and you know, this is a corollary here in the journalism world, which is Substack, you know, people like uh, Andrew Sullivan and um, Barry Weiss and Matt Iglesias and others who are fed up with the mainstream media. They can hang out their shingle and they can either get a large, if you know, if they're well-known and they already have a following, it helps to be well-known, get a large payment uh, upfront Uh, from Substack, or they can agree to share profits and some of them are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, like that's great, terrific. But here's the thing, one of the reasons that uh, Facebook and Instagram have trouble creating these viral videos is that, until now at least, they can only be seen, if you make these things, by the people who follow you. So if you, let's just say, uh, you got 2,000 followers. And then you're really clever and you create all these, uh, all these videos or photos or memes. Well, then maybe it, you uh, boost it to 20,000 followers. That, a, that would be a huge increase, right? But it's still only 20,000 people, whereas uh, there are millions and millions of people on these social media sites, including TikTok, which has about 100 million. But TikTok has a page, it's called For You. It's an algorithm based on what you click on that serves up people you don't know, people you don't follow, the things that the algorithm, the algorithm genius, this artificial intelligence wizard of Oz thing, thinks that you might like. And so that's how new users can suddenly get hot because they get exposed, at least when they first start posting, to all the people who are on TikTok. You know, and you can't wade through everything. So if it's at the top of your For You page as a recommendation, hey, I'll check this out. Facebook wasn't doing that. Facebook may now be changing that. So, you know, Facebook put the burden on the creator to create the following. But, you know, that means you've got to get people to follow you first. TikTok was much shrewder in exposing its, you know, and maybe only one out of 50 makes it. And, And when I say makes it, makes it in terms of making enough money, having enough following, bringing in enough income that you could make a living at it or a very, very lucrative sideline. Uh, but that's smart. And so that's why there's so much copycat here. Number five. I have spoken about and written about for a long time the absolute shameful legacy of newspapers when it came... To the treatment of blacks over many years going back to the days when they were referred to in newspapers because that's how they referred to themselves as negroes and uh, it's come up more recently when various um, papers have apologized because we're now in the woke 21st century and they look back at what they had done and they were so biased and so prejudiced and so bigoted um, in many papers in the South supporting segregation, supporting Jim Crow, supporting discrimination, and in an even more insidious form, um, not really covering their black communities, their sizable black communities in those cities and metropolitan areas, unless, of course, they commit crimes uh, or they are notorious for some other reason. So... Brent Staples, an African-American who works for the New York Times, has this piece that brings a lot of this together. And i got to say, when you read all of this in one sitting, I mean, it is absolutely, positively appalling what these newspapers that now, that still today have respected names and why they are so mistrusted by minority communities because they were a part uh of segregation, to say the least, Brent Staples says white supremacy. and and this is not just rhetoric. I want to read some of these examples um, and, and here's the other thing. He said a lot of uh, blacks who who fled, you know, lynching and segregation and worse in the South. And so they moved north. They found the northern press only marginally less hostile Yankee papers that congratulated themselves for opposing lynching in the abstract, Staples writes, justified it in practice by depicting the victims as naturally disposed toward heinous crimes. So, since the early 2000s, you've had historically white papers in Alabama, California, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, and North Carolina, all apologizing with various degrees of candor, he says, for the roles they played in this history. Uh, And this went on, when you look at it from the beginning to the end, I mean, from Reconstruction, to the rise of Jim Crow, two world wars, the civil rights movement, the urban riots of the '60s, the Vietnam era, and beyond. Now, the civil rights movement was the time when certain newspapers, certain brave editors, particularly in the South, you know, broke with the establishment and supported, you know, Martin Luther King and the nonviolent movement that he led to try to get some change when it came to discrimination, the the legacy of discrimination against blacks. So let me just read you some of these examples. Here's one I never even heard of, which probably says something. The Raleigh News and Observer, North Carolina, has admitted to engineering a landmark episode, as uh, Brent Staples puts it, of racial terrorism. In 1898, there was a white supremacist coup that overthrew the government of the majority black city of Wilmington, North Carolina. And there's no dispute about this. The Raleigh paper has apologized for it, acknowledged it. It was allowed to stand. You didn't have the federal government. You know, you had a lot of Southern segregationists, Democrats, um, in Congress at that time. You didn't have the federal government rushing in to overturn this. Um, Montgomery Advertiser in Alabama, which was once really the voice of the Confederacy, acknowledges being complicit in racial terrorism through the 50s. Lexington Herald leader in Kentucky. Uh, said it had neglected, quote, neglected to cover the Civil Rights Movement at a time when that movement was, you know, absolutely bringing revolutionary change to this country. The LA Times, and I remember this, the Los Angeles Times apologized for being, quote, an institution deeply rooted in white supremacy for most of its history uh, and admitted being not just indifferent, but outright hostile toward the city's non-white population. I mean, that is the second largest, city in the country. Shameful, absolutely shameful. And here's one I remember because it's it's in recent years. Kansas City Star did this like six-part series owning up to this absolutely appalling past, confessing that it had, quote, and this is in the newspaper's own words, disenfranchised, ignored, and scorned generations of black Kansas Citians and robbed an entire community of dignity, justice, and recognition. remaining silent when bombs exploded in the homes of black people not far from the star's own offices. And this is the thing I remember. Uh, One of the most famous people in Kansas City was Charlie Bird Parker, the jazz saxophonist. He didn't get a significant headline, despite the fact that he was a huge success in the jazz world, until he died in 1955. And even then, his name was misspelled and his age was wrong. Just unbelievable. And there were black papers that sprung up. For example, in Memphis, uh, black journalist Ida Wells created the free speech. And they would go out and they would try to cover not just the black community, but lynch mobs and things like that. And Ida Wells' reward for this kind of reporting was that there was an editorial in the white-owned Daily Commercial calling for the writer of the editorial, they didn't know it was her, to be lynched, without using that word. There's another paper where the editorial writer uh, assumed it was a male and called for him to be tied to a stake at the intersection of Main and Madison Streets, his forehead branded with a hot iron and castrated with a pair of tailor's shears. Fortunately, Ida Wells was out of town when a mob destroyed the office of her paper, the free speech. Uh, the New York Times is mentioned in here. The New York Times referred obliquely to the overthrow of the Wilmington government that I mentioned earlier as necessary for restoring law and order. It just goes on and on and on. Um, and uh, they weren't even, in the 50s, a lot of papers, they wouldn't even call blacks Mr. or Mrs., which was a common courtesy title for white people. They would just refer to them by their first names. They wouldn't even give them um, that common courtesy. So, here's what Staples concludes. The apology movement is is historically resonant on several counts. It offers a timely validation of besieged academic discipline known as critical race theory. Well, now you get into the whole debate today. What is critical race theory? The fact that it's taught in certain schools, um, that whites are made to feel guilty, and there's a whole debate about that which I've talked about and we'll we'll pick it up at another time. But, But if you look back, and you can't dispute this, showing that what news organizations once presented as fair and objective journalism was in fact freighted with racist stereotypes that had been deployed, the same kind of stereotypes to justify slavery. Uh, These apologies now lay out how the white press alienated generations of African Americans, many of whom still view the leading news outlets of the U.S. as part of a hostile white media. And, you know, when LBJ... um, appointed his famous Kerner Commission, which found out that America was, you know, sort of two worlds, one white and one black. It also said in its 1968 report, it criticized the press, it's got a lot less attention, for writing and reporting from the standpoint of a white man's world. So I bring this up because the piece caught my eye, because I care about journalism, and because looking back, uh, when obviously the standards have changed, at the neglect, the hostility, the supporting of segregation, the supporting of lynch mobs, um, it is just truly a shame for the press. Now, that is not the press that we have today, but you could certainly understand people being people from the minority community, black communities, people whose fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers lived through the era when either they weren't covered or were painted primarily as criminals or were subjected to violence, which was justified by white newspapers. You don't have to be a liberal on this stuff to look back and say this was awful. The press did an absolutely awful job. And this was typical. It's not every newspaper in America, but it was typical. And I think it's worth looking at this piece of interest. Brent Staples in The New York Times, because there's not a lot of rhetoric. He, there's a couple of paragraphs what he's on on soapbox, and the rest of it is pure Factual examples, not as determined by him, but as determined by what these newspapers from L.A. to Kansas City uh, to Montgomery, Alabama and many other places, what they are now saying after going through their own archives about what they did to the black community over many shameful decades. Well, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy uh, the range of subjects that we try to cover here. I hope you'll subscribe. You can get this thing on your Amazon device or in Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes. Be back here tomorrow. We'll see you then with more BuzzFeed.